to find opinions about religion from people in all walks of life. Far from being something that we should shy away from, we should listen and understand what people say about religion and understand the complexities that people have about faith. Having different voices give us insight with those in our lives who doubt God and can be useful in helping us clarify why we believe in him. Much has been written on the subject of religion, but here are a smattering of thoughts from different people. From Christopher Hitchens, religion is man-made. Even the men who made it cannot agree on what their prophets or redeemers or gurus actually said or did. From John Adams, this would be the best of all possible worlds if there were no religion in it. From Karl Marx, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. From Napoleon. Religion is excellent stuff for keeping the common people quiet. I wonder how that worked out for him. (laughs) From Oscar Wilde. Religion is like a blind man looking in a black room for a black cat that isn't there and finding it. Now in these quotes, you can hear the anger and the cynicism and the humor that the authors found in their observation of those who are religious. And when we hear these kinds of thoughts, we as Christians are, point, are quick to point out, ah, mm, but Christianity isn't a religion. We aren't religious like the Pharisees or those who practice empty ideology. We have a relationship with Jesus. It's different. Now, our defense doesn't necessarily make sense to those who disavow God, who only see the bad, or who have been scarred somehow uh, by Christians and the church. It makes sense to us who want to distance ourselves from those who have a nebulous belief in many things and whose religion can be whatever they make up it to be. And we for sure want to stay far away from hypocrites who everyone points to as the biggest reason why they don't trust God. Jesus called those who were religious for the sake of looks whitewashed tombs, seemingly pure on the outside and dead on the inside. So being religious doesn't seem to be a welcome concept in many places. But in our text today, James is talking about religion in a way that doesn't reflect this attitude He assumes that those who follow Christ are religious. Here, this word religion means the rituals and the liturgies and the prayers and the music that those who have faith practice. Put simply, religion means the worship of God. James is contrasting what good religion is and what good religion is not. So let's see what he has to say about it in James 1, 26 and 27. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The section that we have been studying is about the word God gives us salvation. He keeps us alive. He shows us what it means to live for him all by his word. So let's set aside the negative connotation of religion and focus in on what it means to be a genuine worshiper of God. Someone 
who is devout. We worship God because we love him with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. And these words of James are powerful because he's giving us three ways that we should show that we love God. Obviously, there's much more to worshiping God than this, but these three ideas are essential in the life of every Christian today. James starts by illustrating what being devout is not in a teaching about the tongue. He frames it in how the listener sees themselves. If you think that you love God, but your tongue is out of control, James says, you're lying to yourself. Remember, as we saw last week, he used similar language when he talked about looking in a mirror. He's keen on believers being honest with themselves about who they really are. Don't let there be a disconnect with who you say you are and who you really are. Always make sure that those match up. What a vivid description James gives us here. Tongues like wild horses need to be reined in. God directs us, but too often we charge ahead, saying what we please. So let's consider some sins of the tongue. Lying, gossiping, swearing by God, berating, name-calling, threatening, fighting, engaging in innuendo, slandering, abusing, judging, misrepresenting, complaining, manipulating, using vulgar language, controlling, dismissing, shaming. None of these are what people who worship the Lord should regularly be engaged in. We cannot be right with God and say what we want like a horse running amok. In my reading this week, one pastor said that we should not have galloping tongues. That's a word picture. Both wild horses and unchecked tongues can do great damage to those who are in their path. Someone once said to John Wesley, My talent is to speak my mind. And Wesley replied, That's one talent God wouldn't care if you buried. Now, sometimes people excuse themselves by making pronouncements about how they can't help it. They can't help themselves when they do wrong things because this is how they're made. This is how they're wired. I'm sorry if you don't like it, if you can't accept me, but this is just how I am. I just say what I think. But scripture is clear. And James warns multiple times in his letter that holding one's thoughts inside should be a discipline that all of us should cultivate. In our lives, we talk a lot. The average American spends 30% of their day speaking to someone else. Depending on how garrulous you are and maybe how fast you speak, they said in California we speak louder, I mean long, uh, faster than the average bear. That's 80 to 30,000 words a day. Another study compared talking to writing a book. If you were writing a novel, as fast as you speak, you would finish... A novel in a little over five hours. So in a lifetime, we literally speak volumes with our words. We have to be careful what we say. James makes sure that we know the focus here is on us and not terrible other people who uh, don't uh, have uh, control bridling their tongue. 
And I would add one caveat here. If someone is being repeatedly verbally abusive to you, or there is a toxic person in your life in this way, I really encourage you to talk to somebody to stop the cycle of that. And we're always available to do that. What would the Spirit of God say to you about your use of your tongue? I have gotten myself into trouble more because of my words than anything else. So much so that in my house I have a sign that says this, Lord, keep your arm around my shoulders and your hand over my mouth. (laughs) While it is a humorous reminder, I have a lot of regret for how my words have hurt others. So let's take a moment and ask God, where do you need to reign in your tongue? Our prayer is that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart would be pleasing to God. And when that is not true, may we use the words, please forgive me, and mean them to make things right. Next, James tells us what religion should look like, giving two ways of actively living out our love for God. One is for caring for orphans and widows in distress. This is also a strong biblical mandate in all of scripture, to care for the vulnerable, the impoverished, the lonely, and the grieving is the work of God's people. I think that there are a few reasons why this is our job. One is because those who have received abundant grace from him are meant to go and give that abundant grace out to others. Two is because this is why Jesus came, to live among the poor and to lift them up, and he encourages us to do the same. Three is because as we freely love and care for those who are on the edge of survival, we are safe people who are not going to exploit them. People who live on the edge are often exploited. Christians offer a safe harbor, bringing people in. When we read about widows and orphans, we think of women whose husbands have tragically died and children who don't have parents. This is correct. However, there is a larger context. Orphans can be children who are in vulnerable situations because they are no longer living with their family for a variety of reasons. Perhaps they have a parent who is alive but cannot care for them. When Wayne Goller comes from India and tells us about his school, his orphanage, he says that there are children like that at their school. They have families, but the families don't have the means to provide for them. The United Nations organization UNICEF estimates that there are 26 million children worldwide who have lost both parents to death. They also report that that number rises to 150 million if you count children who have lost just one parent but who are on the edge of survival, who are living in institutions or with distant relatives or in refugee camps or on the street. And many of them live in extreme danger because of war and disaster, government oppression, famine, or illness. And then they are prone to abuse and trafficking and neglect. Widows here were women in precarious positions because they were alone with no rights. And there are women all over the world that don't have equal protection under the law in their country. But we also need to expand the definition to widowers, to men. These could be people whose spouses have abandoned their family, who are in jail or aren't present because of a debilitating illness or addiction. In both cases, the orphan and the widow don't have the means or the power or the connection to those who do. James uses the word here, distress, which means pressure. 
So the church needs to care for those who feel the pressure, who feel the constant weight, the hardship of their lives weighing in on them. As I was praying about that this this week, it occurred to me that it is never the church's job to decide from a moral standpoint who deserves to be cared for and who does not. There are times that we sit in judgment of certain behaviors as a reason not to help. Does a teenager who becomes a single mom or a homeless guy strung out on drugs or a child stranded because of immigration who have no parents need the love of Jesus? God's heart is with the downtrodden and the lost, regardless of choices or circumstances that led them there. And as his body, we care for those Because he asks us and we are accountable to him. Lord, when did we see you naked or in prison or hungry? Our ministry is to do the work that is in front of us, to do his will, even when we want to turn away, even when we're angry, when we want to go back to our comfortable lives. James says, showing love for God, true religion means caring for orphans and widows in distress. And that may mean people who have made the worst choices that led to their situation. Because each person is important and precious. 1 John 3 says this. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, but closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or talk, but in deed and truth. Lastly, James says that religion that is pure is to keep oneself unstained by the world. Some translations render this word unstained as not polluted or unspotted. Part of how we worship God, how we show our love for him, is to guard ourselves from the immorality all around us. Daily, there are choices before us that might cause us to compromise our faith. We know what they are. We know what our personal temptations are. He does not tell us to remove ourselves from the world, but to stay close to God on our journey So we actively seek to keep our lives clear of sin. There have been many instances when the church has reacted in fear to the culture around it, which resulted in a rigid legalism where believers could only behave in certain ways. And while we may be glad to not be living in so many days of rules designed to keep us holy, it means that through God's power we have to find the narrow way of what it means while we live in a corrupt world. This is the healthier, better way, but it is the harder way. It's easier to live by rules or by no rules than to live out the real relationship with Christ, which takes intention and authenticity. So we ask ourselves, is there anything that we have allowed in our lives that dishonors the Lord? Is there anything that has stained us that God needs to cleanse? Is there anything that needs to be removed? Where do we need God's protection So let us ask our holy God how he sees our lives and make changes accordingly. In this short section, James is showing us what belonging to God looks like. He is differentiating for us what following Jesus means. John Calvin says this about this passage. James does not define generally what religion is, but reminds us that religion without the things he means is nothing. So, are you religious? James is saying that religion is simply the outward manifestation of a heart that is connected to God. 
So make sure that in the working out of your salvation, you understand how you define religion and what it means to you and reject those who would tear you down for it. And be careful distancing yourself from those whose ideas of religion is different than yours. Talk to them. Show them what it means to you. Show them who God is in your life. If religious means loving God and knowing him and following him and having our actions come out of that relationship, then yeah, we're religious. We commit ourselves to Jesus and he leads us and enables us to be like him. And James is saying that in Christ, our life should look like this. People who honor God with their speech, with how they help the most vulnerable and how they remain like him while living fully in the world. So let's take a moment in quiet reflection, allowing the spirit to speak to us. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.